Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. For many wealthy families, concentrated investment positions present special types of issues. More often than not, a diversification plan for a position that has been built up over decades is relegated to a five-minute discussion. And it shouldn't. For low-cost basis issues, income requirements, family executive involvement, and even other factors like emotional attachment, the decision to buy and sell liquid positions can be more complicated than it looks. To help us understand the best practices in the area and some of the tools at a family's disposal, we're going to talk to Stephen Davenport from Decatur Capital Management. Based in Atlanta, Steve is the Director of Alternative Investments for Decatur and advises clients on a wide array of issues, including concentrated position management. Steve received a degree in industrial engineering at Columbia, a degree in math and computer science at Providence College, and a master's in finance from Boston College. I also had the pleasure of working with him back at Wilmington Trust. Welcome aboard, Steve. Thanks, Fraser. It's a pleasure to be here. Congrats on your 89th podcast. You've got a library of pretty impressive podcast leaders. It's been fun to do, and it's fun to have you on. I should tell our listeners, you and I worked together back at Wilmington Trust, which was a lot of fun, and we're going to talk about a client that we had and some of the things we had to deal with a concentrated position there. But it's a treat to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your background and how that informed your worldview and basically what you do as far as advising clients around their wealth generally and then around concentrated positions. It's really about trying to apply a quantitative method in a kind manner. I realize that you can look at quantitative numbers and explain them to a client, but unless they understand how it affects their values and how it affects what they want to achieve, that's what really matters. So I've taken my quantitative skills and I've applied them in finance. When I started in this business, everybody was talking about how do we explain to clients in 2000 the difference between risk and return? How do we put it in terms that they'll understand? And what I noticed is it became much more of discussion about emotion versus reason. I was trying to take the reasons behind the risk of those particular names like an Akamai, and I was trying to bring them to the client in a way that they could understand. And a lot of clients had such an emotional tie to their positions. It was not about what the returns were going to be. It was that they felt a great allegiance because their wealth was created by that company. And it's confidence bias. And as I started to get involved in this, I started to realize that there was a lot of behavioral finance that influenced their decisions. So I looked at their work of Kahneman and Tversky when they won the Nobel Prize and talked about how we're not efficient economic animals. We make ineffective decisions. So what my job really is, is not to say I want to have an optimal solution. I just want to have a less of a negative decision. I want to try to help clients move away from areas where their emotion will drive the issue and try to be kind of the voice of reason. 
So when you're dealing with a client who's at an Akamai or a Broadcom and they're riding the wave, this euphoria, maybe it's post IPO, they're watching the stock price go from 30 to 100. They can see what their net worth looks like. What were some of the things that you talked about to educate them to try to break the cycle of addiction to the stock price and get them to think about these broader concepts and to try to remove the emotion about it out, introduce the concepts of diversification, and hopefully save them from themselves occasionally? Yeah, I had one family that the wife and the husband sat with me, and I was with a consultant, and the consultant was bringing in me and three other people to help them diversify. I asked them, what do you want to achieve with your money? He started to speak and his wife put her hand up and said, hold on. You can talk about the future with the money as much as you want, but here's what I want. I want to put $5 million into muni bonds that are paying 4% so that we'll have a lifestyle that we can be comfortable with for the rest of our lives. Whatever we do with the other is up to him but I want to get my piece in place first. And I think that we all have these different drivers of what we're trying to achieve. And in that meeting, by asking the question, I was able to get to the heart of where was the risk? We know that this is a great event for them, and therefore they were very happy, but they wanted to secure their future first. And then if we want to sell the stock. So I watched the stock move from 30 up to 90, 95, and I sold some 70, 80, 90, and then it went back to three. We got out of the stock and there were fundamental analysts that were saying it was worth $100 even though it had no earnings. I was sitting there saying, I'm not sure what the fundamentals really give you because you're discounting too many years into the future. So what I said is, Let's look at what the market gives us and then work from there. So I think that when it comes time for this event, all of these people are geniuses in technology and biotech and all of their particular areas, but they're not really familiar with what the markets are like. What are the markets going to give you and why? How does what the Fed says influence what's happening with my company Understanding that risk is both macro relative to the market and also micro relative to the company. They are used to a world that's all about their company, but once they mix the two risks at the market being a public company, it changes the dynamics. So I think that that's where I come in as kind of the aggregator of different experiences with different names, but also across different times and different market situations. I think that this is very easy to say, in theory, I should sell the stock. But emotionally, a client is going to feel a certain amount of synergy owning it. And you have to explain how the diversified basket could perform differently. And also, in my mind, one of the simple ways is to think about what is the relative value? If you have $20 million of Microsoft and I say to you, I'll give you $20 million in cash. How much of Microsoft would you buy today? And then they say, well, that's different. And I say, I know it is, but that tells me what do you think of today's price relative going forward? That gives me an idea of how much they're ultimately willing to hold through all situations. Most clients will come back with four or five million. 
And I'll say, okay, well, let's hold 405 forever so that we don't regret. My job is to prevent regret. There's regret I didn't sell enough at the beginning. There's regret I held too much. There's regret that I sold in 2019 versus 2020. There's all sorts of regret. And so my job is to minimize that regret and spread out the sales into different tax periods, into different regimes, so that they're diversifying themselves out of the stock and into the market at different times. It's a multifaceted approach because I don't think I have the crystal ball. I think that when I moved to Atlanta and I work with Wilmington Trust, I noticed that it was a very different clientele with DuPont stock. Then I moved to SunTrust and worked with Coca-Cola, and it was a very different stock there, too, with all the Coke airs. Now I'm at Decatur, and I see a combination of all of the people I work with in Boston, in Delaware, and in Atlanta. And I see that all of these families have a common issue, and that issue is how do I get my values associated with what I'm investing in? Because some families don't feel the same way as their parents do about the stock. So one of the things that I've talked to a lot of clients about when trying to educate them about the single position and the love affair that is sometimes hard to break with that is the concept that don't bet on boxing unless you know the promoter. And I use the example of Lehman Brothers, where there were some pretty high flyers who were spectacular in their particular silos, and they had very little actual knowledge of how the company was doing. And ultimately, their concentrated position in something that seemed to be quite robust turned out to be a disaster. How do you break through to people and try to give them some of those real-world examples and at the same time not poison the water of their employment situation? I look at myself as the honest broker. Because in my mind, the more information I give them, the more I share experiences with them, I feel the better prepared they are to make a good decision. I think that when I'm in a room, I usually have a trusted advisor who's there, a lawyer or somebody who's investing for them. And then I come in as the specialist around the derivatives and the risk. And I say to them, I know you may not like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think this is my best thinking in regards to risk. I leave the room and the advisor is there with the client and they say, Steve says X. I think you are probably more in one half X. Why don't we try to do something in between? And ultimately, you're trying to move people forward and you have to do it in a way that's delicate, but also fairly real because I've had situations where this Broadcom client that we talked about, he was talking to me, Broadcom was close to $200 a share. Six months later, Broadcom was at $4. I was very clear to him that he should diversify and put them into boring things like Exxon, Ford Motor, and GE. And he said, those are dead companies to me. I like to go home at night knowing I've given the best advice I can in every situation. And I agree that it's very difficult, but you put your head on the pillow at night and you can sleep very well. So let's talk a little bit about the client we had back at Wilmington and obviously no names mentioned or anything like that, but it involved a stock that is well known by many investors, which was Berkshire Hathaway. 
And it involved kind of an interesting situation where there was a very large concentration and it had a lot of facets to it that prevented automatic diversification. It had a low cost basis, which meant that there were significant tax ramifications for selling it. There was some emotional attachment to the stock for a variety of reasons. There were a couple of other factors as well. How do you think about that when there are real numerical issues related to diversification that's going to present a cost? And tell the listeners a little bit about how you thought about that and some of the tools that you brought to bear. One of the big thing was that they had a 4% distribution on this trust and we decided, you know, it didn't pay a dividend. So what I tried to do is say, look, you've got B shares now. They've started trading B share options. Let's use the B share options as a way to generate the income so that instead of selling 4%, maybe I generate two or three and you only sell 1%. And as we developed this program for these beneficiaries, it became clear that this was a great solution because previously they said, when is Buffett going to pay a dividend? And the answer was never. And so they looked at it and said, this is a synthetic dividend. And I told them, it's not a synthetic dividend. It's going to have periods where the stock's going to outperform. But if you think about it, if the stock is up 20% and I lose 1% on the options, the tax rate at the time was 15%. So I would say their tax bill got paid. They would still prefer not to have paid the taxes and make the dividend. But these are good problems to have, right, Frazier? I talk to people sometimes about the concept of income versus capital appreciation at the top level, but then cash flow versus asset growth. And when you're dealing with a situation that mandates that 4% output, you got a lot of different things going on. How did the options work around the Berkshire B shares? They were new when they came out, as I recall. And so the market for them was just developing. There were probably analogies to other stocks, but nothing direct to Berkshire. What were the spreads like on that? How did you think about it, especially with a new position like that? So this client, I think the amount was close to $100 million in Berkshire. And so what I said at the time was, I never want to be too much in one particular option. So my strategy has always been, I want to spread the risk among many different, like a short-term bond manager. I have some three-month paper, some four-month paper, and some five-month paper. And they each have different characteristics, meaning they have different strike prices and slightly different implied volatility. So that allows me to get in and out of those positions with smaller amounts. So I might be investing $5 million or $10 million in a particular option contract, and that was a lot easier to get done than trying to say, hey, I know what the optimal option is. It's the three-month, and it's $225 strike, and I'm putting all $65 million in that option. That, to me, was an ineffective way to implement it because you have to be all-knowing that that price and that time period is perfect. I would rather try the, let's keep rolling it up at higher levels in small increments, and then every month something expires, and I just keep rolling that amount up. And that's, to me, giving you more upside and preventing that liquidity crunch when you have to get out of an option on the Friday of an option expiration. So I think that spreading the liquidity between different option periods and different strikes 
was the key to making that work for that client. And the spreads were about 10 or 15 cents on those options. And I had to work with the traders to do it slowly and do it in a way that, you know, wasn't going to hit those spreads too hard and we would get pretty good execution. But I think the lesson here is tread softly and try to make sure you remember what your overall goal is. Client wanted to keep upside, but they also wanted income. You have to juggle a few balls. Getting back to sort of a larger investment policy statement, that type of analysis seems to track with having an options program around concentrated positions like that. By having a set of guardrails, that allowed you to have some focus on the way to put the program in place and to accomplish those goals and at the same time minimize risk. I think the idea of trying to go in and and pick out one particular option and put everything into it, that's crazy. You're sort of taking concentration risk and amplifying it. (laughs) For us, it was really about, I asked the question all the time to the advisor, how would you feel if these got taken at 250? You know, the stock was at 200. And you'd say, I'd feel great. And so there is a price at which you can write an option and feel comfortable letting it go. I start off with income as my goal, but I ultimately want the client to start to think about, well, what is a price that I'd be comfortable letting this go? And then I start again with that question, how much would you buy if you were buying Berkshire today at this price? And that tells me an end. So if I've got an initial amount I want to sell, I've got an end date, and I've got a price target, I'm starting to fill in the variables on the plan, right? And that process of going through a a disciplined and a regular process really makes clients very comfortable. A lot of clients have said, hey, I'm a technical person. I like working with an engineer on my finances. I mean, sometimes I thought of being an engineer as a liability, but in some ways it was a gift. Because in the technical world of 2000 to 2008, it became an asset and not a liability to be more technical. Certainly being able to set up systems and processes around it, I think, is important. Tell me a little bit about what happens. You know, we talked about Berkshire and Berkshire, you know, B shares and things like that, large positions that have an options market around it. What happens when you're in a more lightly traded position? How do you deal with that? At what point do you make the decision that the options market is too lean and too volatile? And how do you broach that conversation with your clients? So it really becomes a what the purpose of the client is. Some clients their only purpose is to exit. I've got a client now with a stock that's a high flying technical stock and it's a fintech. And this client is very happy to exit it, just exit it at a price that's higher than today. So he's willing to write the calls and just let them be taken. In that case, the liquidity isn't as big a factor. If I have a client who is really wed to a stock It tends to be stocks that have been around longer, and they usually have a pretty good market. Stocks that are very new, I find that the participants realize there's a lot of risk there, and they are more comfortable letting them go and exiting, using options as an exit strategy. There's really two, three strategies, right? There's exit, there's income, and then there's collaring. And I find that the collaring and the exit tend to be for those thinner stocks, more popular strategies, because they can feel the risks that they're taking. And therefore, they're more interested in full risk reduction versus writing calls for income. It helps 2 or 3% income, but in a 20% drawdown, 
that's not going to be the type of protection they really need. Talk a little bit more about collaring. We dealt with it personally, but maybe for our listeners, what the collaring looks like and what functions that that furthers. I've had some situations during the crash last year in 2020 where I had a client with Exxon and they had a loan against their stock and the stock was collateral for the loan. And so when the stock went down below a certain point, when the stock went below 35, they started having calls that you needed to sell it. What's more prevalent is when you take out a loan, you set up a caller. So if you think about Exxon at the time was in the mid 50s. So we could have set up a caller at 50 and sold a call at 60. And then the client's market value in that account wouldn't have gone below the 200,000 shares times 50. or And so the market value is secured. So their caller and their loan are not going to be executed when the stock took the trip all the way to 32. And so I had a similar client who had a lot equity line against Pinterest and he didn't want to hedge. He said, I think the stocks is a $50 stock and it was trading at 40. But during the pandemic, it went down to 14. So he was forced to sell it at 14 when he believed it was a much better stock. So if you don't want to have those situations, you need to think about its insurance. And you don't want to look for insurance when the rain has already started, right? It's easier to buy an umbrella before it starts raining. And I think that's where I try to tell clients, if you're not comfortable having to sell this, if the worst situation exists, then let's collar it so that you get some peace at night and be able to sleep. Because I think that there's the prevalence of people borrowing against these positions is at the highest level I've ever seen, which makes me very concerned. If people are taking more risk with leverage, they don't always understand that that leverage has another edge, right? When it goes, leverage works on the upside, it also cuts very hard on the down. It can bite you and it doesn't feel good if it works against you, that's for sure. For a lot of people who are dealing with RIAs in general with concentrated positions, I think one of the tools is the exchange of low basis stock into an exchange fund. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and what are the pluses and minuses of that versus a more detailed approach through the actual options market? Exchange funds can be a good solution if you have somebody who is nearing the end of life and there is going to be a transfer to their family members. I think where it doesn't make sense is if you've got somebody who's in their 60s and they've got a lifespan of another 20 or 30 years, an exchange fund, you take a security and the, the fund has to want the security. So usually if your stock is fully priced, the fund manager doesn't want to take in expensive stocks. He'd like to take in, you know, so the incentives of the fund and the individual are not aligned. They take in the stock if they want it, and then they give you the return of the fund, which is usually the S&P 500. But they charge you, say, one and a quarter to one and a half for that transfer. And it's required that you stay for seven years or else you pay a penalty. So think about seven times one and a half, you know, is almost a 10% expense. And we're trying to avoid a 20% tax. So you're going to pay the expense but the assets you get have the same cost basis as what you put in. So you're really not getting something for nothing. You're really paying for something that is deferring and giving you some diversification, 
but it still has the same cost basis. And at the end of the seven years, you can take back your stock or you can take back a collection of stocks they'll give you. And they don't usually give you a collection that's fully diversified. So it's usually you're getting names that he doesn't want anymore that are fully priced. So again, he transfers out fully priced securities that he doesn't want and you transfer in stuff that isn't fully priced because he's willing to take it. So that's two situations where you've sub-optimized your process. These canned solutions, as I mentioned, are not the answer. When I think about what happens with concentrated stock management, it really has to have three elements. You've got to have a customized, holistic solution. You need to use the tools of the options market and all other markets to enhance the transition. And you always need to adjust as the playing field changes. When I think about the market, the playing field is about to change quite a bit with higher tax rates. And we need to be thinking ahead in terms of how we're going to react to it. Let's talk a little bit about some of the themes that you just alluded to there that you're thinking about. I'm sure inflation is one of those things that clients are talking about, taxes. We can get into some other ones, but what's keeping you up at night? What are you trying to either defend against or take advantage of? I find that the indexing of America has kind of created a situation where people aren't as comfortable with now. Because we've got capital gains rates that look like they might go from 23.8 all the way up to 40%. If people aren't willing to sell now at 23.8, what are they going to be like at 40? There's going to be no selling. And that's going to create a less liquid market for everyone. And so I think that indexes were presented as this be-all and end-all. And I look at indexing as kind of the Clint Eastwood Western, the good, the bad, and the ugly. When you think about companies that are in indexes and you look at them from an ESG perspective, there's a lot of names in there that aren't good. There's a lot of names that are doing things that you're not comfortable with and your values might not be aligned with, but you bought the whole index. And that's where I think that approaching your equities with a more selective manner understanding where their ESG elements are is going to be better for you. I think that thinking about a longer time horizon, when I see the meme trades and that option trades in August were an average of two weeks, that tells me that time horizons have just gone away as a way to think about investments. This is all speculation. And that speculation over weekly periods or daily periods is not really in an investment market. And fees. When I think about clients, I think they need to focus on fees and how they affect their overall return. So when I look at indexing and I look at what's happening in the markets, I get very concerned that people don't understand what they own because there's a lot of things from a carbon standpoint, environmental standpoint that make them uncomfortable and also going to make them have lower returns going forward because We've done a lot of work in ESG space around the idea of the bottom quartile of companies from ESG's perspective. Just excluding those names will add 60 to 100 basis points of performance. From an ESG perspective, we'll take it to the tax policy, which, as you said, may also create a slowdown 
well, maybe a quick speed up of sales if people think they're going to be locking in rates. Tough to tell what that's going to look like with the legislation. What are you thinking about on that front? We're not getting a lot of clarity from our legislature yet as to what's going to be in place. How do you defend against that? Fraser, I think we're in a bit of a la-la land. I mean, we've been living with the Fed controlling and influencing markets now since 2008. And I think their situation in the market is they just can't seem to get out. They can't seem to get themselves away from it. And when you look at what's happening, you see inflation in the form of investment assets that are just mispriced. You look at crypto, you look at NFTs, non-fungible tokens, you look at SPACs, you look at meme stocks, and then IPOs, and you see that the pricing of those things has disconnected from reality because there's so much liquidity chasing so few stocks. And so when you think about those and you think about the real estate market and how the Fed is buying 40 billion in mortgage bonds every month, that's creating a situation that is untenable for the long term. Are we going to have temporary Fed put options or are they going to become permanent? I think that's where I worry about is this liquidity, if it's temporary, is fine. But if it's not temporary, it creates real problems in the market. And I think that the government is looking at it saying, we're going to increase taxes now that people's assets are worth more and increase capital gains. And then that way, we'll take back some of these inflated dollars and use those to pay down debt. I see this as a temporary situation and the higher tax rates if they exist and stay going forward, they're going to create a real friction in the economy that's going to be very hard for us to really move as nimbly and as well as the American economy has moved in the past. So I get very worried about the removal of liquidity is going to cause more volatility and higher tax rates are going to make people less likely to implement solutions in terms of selling So that's going to require that they use options as a way to adjust their beta. They're going to need to collar more assets. They're going to need to do things to avoid selling, but also avoid the decline that comes with higher tax rates. A quick question. We talked about crypto and how it's been inflated. And a lot of people have lots of concentrated wealth in that as a result of the last five to 10 years. What does the options market, if any, look like around that space? Is that something that you anticipate developing? And how do you deal with clients that come to you talking about their good problems of having big concentrated positions in the crypto world? If you look at what's happening, the market is developing for options. I was in discussions with a group in Canada about having an ETF that owned Bitcoin and then sold call options against it. So if we think about options on the market are around 17%. When you look at crypto, the average volatility of the crypto options is somewhere in the 70 to 80%. So if I can generate one and a half to 2% on a 17 vol, what could I do with an 80? It would generate close to 8% in income. And so eight to 10% income on something that has the kind of volatility that they have really creates an opportunity for somebody to say, I don't know about holding this for its underlying value. It could have value, it could not, but I do like the idea of siphoning off the volatility 
and using it as a tool to generate income. And so that's where I think people are moving. People are moving, as you said, towards protection on crypto. I think the whole space is simply going to explode. The question I have is, is it Bitcoin? Is it Ethereum? Or is it going to be some type of crypto that comes from the central banks of the US, Europe, and China? I have a feeling that if this becomes too good in terms of being controlled outside of the normal financial systems, that the people in the financial system are going to want a replacement. That sounds logical to me. And further to the point, you start talking about people who are staking and lending crypto out. If they're able to have another tool in their toolkit from the options market, that might make things a little bit more robust as well. What I'm seeing is that people are really interested in the option space to take more risk with crypto. And they're willing to pay the call option, buy the call options to get the exposure, even with those 70 or 80 implied vols. And I've seen from the meme trades, a lot of option trading in Tesla and Amazon, and people are paying outrageous volatility for the upside. And yes, that works as long as it goes up. But when it stops working, then you have the professionals come in and they take them from you at a much lower vol. The assets go to their quote unquote rightful owners at that point. And I think that that's where I think this whole marketplace, when we talk about beating the hedge funds and the Reddit crowd, and I just feel like if you look at this space, it's very hard to make money. And therefore, if you think that reading a post on Reddit is going to give you the skills to beat the hedge funds, that's an interesting idea, but I think that other people would have probably tried that if it was that easy to do. For sure. Steve, how do we stay in touch with you going forward? How do people find you if they want to learn more? Contact me at sdavenport at decatercapital.com. I'm also very active on LinkedIn and you know I can connect through LinkedIn or through email. So I look forward to having conversations with anyone that I can help. I'm going to have all that information on the show notes for our listeners. Steve, thanks for making the time to come on. It's been great to speak with you. It's great talking to you, Frazier. Good luck. Stay safe. Will do. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.